You are listening to a podcast hosted by the Food Security Subcommittee of the American Meteorological Society. The theme this year is Environmental Security, Weather, Water, and Climate for a More Secure World. We will be going around the world to better understand the impacts of extreme events and climate change on global food security and how early warning systems, agrometeorology, and effective public policy can combat food insecurity. This is your host, meteorologist Emily Niebuhr. Thank you for joining us on today's podcast. We are talking with Admiral Tim Gallaudet. He is currently the CEO of Ocean STL Consulting and former Deputy Administrator of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, NOAA, Assistant Secretary of Commerce, and before that, Oceanographer of the Navy. He is also the host of the American Blue Economy podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today, Admiral Gallaudet. You've had quite the extensive and impressive career in government, and we are really excited to have you on today's podcast. Can you walk us through your 36-year career in government? Well, Emily, thanks for having me. It's a real delight to have this uh, show with you and join you. I think you're doing a great thing with it. And the AMS food security effort, I think, is an important one, as I mentioned during our last panel uh, last month. But, yeah, so I've been in the government for 36 years. I started out in the Navy serving as a meteorology and oceanography officer. And that involved things like mapping the ocean all around the world, uh, forecasting weather for naval forces uh, in Spain and in Japan and other places. And also uh, leading at a, at a high level of policy regarding the oceanography and hydrography in the Pentagon. And then when I left, uh, I was picked up at NOAA to be the acting and deputy administrator in charge of that awesome agency, doing a lot of what I did in the Navy, doing it for the Navy, doing it for the nation. Now, I'm like you in the private sector consulting for some very cool companies that do ocean, weather, and climate technology. And, uh, and we're working with NOAA in a number of different offices, and I really like it. What is the most important thing you learned about working in government? I learned quite a bit. I have to thank the Navy. They sent me to get three degrees on their dime, a bachelor's, master's, and PhD in oceanography. Um, and that, that itself is learning quite a bit. Over the course of my journey, you know, I learned a lot of things involving technology and science, but I also learned a lot about people. And, and that was probably the best. I think developing as a leader and leading organizations, inspiring people to do their best and reach their potential. That was probably the greatest thing I've ever learned. And again, I think when I was at NOAA, uh, it was probably what I delighted in the most was uh, working to advance our people and their programs and trying to give them uh, hope and empower them to do the best they could, they could do and be the best they could be. What is the most challenging thing that you've had to face working for the federal government? Oh, there are a lot of challenges in government. You know, uh, there, government has so many uh, processes and procedures 
And so you'll find, and I know you're going to ask me about this later, it's hard for the government to move as fast as the private sector because so many programs are really defined in law, and so it becomes very prescriptive. And, you know, you've heard of the whole thing, red tape, bureaucracy. Well, that's not a myth. It really occurs in government. And it occurs for a good reason. It's to ensure that the tax dollars of our American public are well spent. Um, but at the same time, it can be challenging to get new things started, new programs. I'll give you a good example. Um, one of the things at NOAA that I was proud of doing was standing up an uncrewed system program. And this was a we had had a lot of our scientists doing, you know, drones, basically drone work, either aerial, surface, or subsurface for oceanography, fisheries, uh, stock assessments, um, atmospheric science, all these great applications, mapping, seafloor mapping. But it was a lot of hobby shopping by individual scientists. And I realized, hey, we really need to unify effort across all the line offices. And then, and with an official program and a program office directing it, then, then we can start being efficient and actually scale up use of these uncrewed systems. So uh, I worked to get a new program established, and I had to get the Congress involved. I had to get the White House involved. And it was a little challenging, you know. We didn't have the best budget at NOAA under the last administration, so to get new money was really hard. But... But it, it took persuasion, and I had a lot of experience in my Navy days, and, uh, and I had some connections in the Congress, and, uh, and the White House was willing, and so things came together. But yeah, those, those are some of the challenges, trying to get new things started and improve some, and just be more efficient. It's a little bit hard, but you have to make do with what you have. You recently changed to the private sector. What can you tell us about the differences between private sector and government? What is the most exciting aspect about working in the private sector? Well, right, just like I said before, now I work for a number of companies and they're incredibly agile. And that's what's so exciting to me is they move very fast, they lean forward, and they're not restricted by acquisition regulations or certain protocols and processes. And that actually can help them move fast, which is great. Uh, so that number of companies I am working for do that. There's a, a, the biggest commercial ocean buoy company uh, is called So Far Ocean. And, and those folks are brilliant. They, their buoys are only $5,000 a piece. It takes our government to, to develop buoys at a cost of 50 to even more. When you look at our tsunami buoys, and, um, and so this company just has done that, but become really agile and moved and developed a really unique technology. And it's, it's things like that. It's, it's fun to be a part of startups because there's energy, they're innovating, and that's where I think the government has opportunity to increase the public-private partnerships that they enter into to help them move fast as well. What do you think is your proudest achievement in your extensive career? Well, you're kind to say that. It's probably another way of saying that I'm old. But, but uh, you know, what I'm most proud of when someone comes to me and says, you know what, thank you. Um, you said something to me or you opened the door or uh, you just influenced me and I took that on board and it helped me in my career. 
that, that is what makes me most proud. I, I've had a number of people at NOAA say that in different ways, and, and, I'm, and that's, there's nothing more fulfilling than to know you helped lift somebody up. Uh, of course, there's other things like programmatically accomplishments, you could say, that I, I've, I've uh, been responsible for, but it's that direct impact on people which I really value the most, everything that I accomplished wasn't me. It was a team, it, literally. I mean, I, so, so here's something I, I was really proud of. Is after 9-11, the attacks on the Twin Towers and the Pentagon, uh, many of the listeners maybe weren't alive then, but that was a pretty significant event in our history. And I was on an aircraft carrier that flew the first strikes into Afghanistan, and that was fulfilling, knowing we had a, we were able to basically punch back at those terrorists. And driving an aircraft carrier was an ultimate team sport, as well as conducting the, the strikes into Afghanistan. You have a ship of 5,000 people. I was an officer of the deck, so I drove the ship. And I was in charge of a detachment of meteorologists who forecast the weather, which is really important because the weather was always really bad over Afghanistan. And these special forces helicopters that were on our ship. Um, it, was, it was really difficult aviation in that weather. But just being a part of an effort like that, it was a major team effort. I worked with Navy SEALs, and it was very much the same. Uh, I supported their operations in Iraq and Afghanistan with a team of 100 techs that I led, technicians. And one of the jobs they did was flying unmanned aerial vehicles or uncrewed aerial vehicles, drones for intelligence and surveillance to keep them safe, to know when the bad guys were coming. And then at NOAA, I had so much fun because there, was, there were a lot of activities we led together. One of them was a national effort to map the ocean, and we established an interagency committee or council called the National Ocean Mapping and Exploration and Characterization Council, and it still exists. The acronym is NOMEC, and they're underway, making way right now today with NOAA ship's NOAA's ship Oceanus Explorer starting the 2022 exploration season, uh, mapping and exploring with deep diving remotely operated vehicles. And uh, I just love that program. And I'm so glad that we started it. We developed a national strategy and plan, and they're still following it. And there are some other things, too, uh, uh, artificial intelligence strategy and plan, a uh, a cloud and data strategy and plan that we led. And for all of those, it was teams of folks who said, yeah, let's get together. Let's develop a way ahead. And now they're doing it. And it's, it's really a, a fun to watch. Artificial intelligence is a huge topic right now in our scientific communities. What do you think are good and bad examples of using AI in terms of solving problems in weather and climate? Right. Well, there's a lot of good examples, Emily, uh, because AI and machine learning dramatically increase the efficiency of, of models and processing uh, for weather, climate, and ocean data. And one a great example is this radiative transfer model that um, uh, we ran in NESDIS for the entire globe on a supercomputer and traditionally, I think it typically took an hour and a half and by running it with an AI based algorithm, it took a second, one second. 
So that's orders of magnitude improvement in compute time. And the examples, I mean, in terms of the efficiency compared to manual processing, if you're doing things like analyzing coral and trying to break out and classify different types of coral with imagery or identifying protected species like the North Atlantic right whale from overhead photographs and video, it's just the, the AI and ML work or uh, capabilities, pardon me, are just you know, far exceed anything you could do with your own eyeball. But um, there are there are dangers, if you will, and that's where this term called trustworthy AI comes into play because you want to make sure that AI being database, not following a geophysical equation, physics-based equation, that you can potentially get results that aren't physically possible. So it's really important in AI, or pardon me, climate, ocean, and weather applications of AI to put those kind of um, rails on, those, those thresholds, those boundaries, to ensure you don't get answers that don't make sense. But that's, a, that's an important aspect of the overall field, and the community is doing a good job of that. You are a big advocate for the blue economy. Can you describe what exactly is the blue economy and its role in food security? Yeah. Well, you're right. I am a proud champion of the American blue economy, and I have a podcast called The American Blue Economy Podcast. Go figure. But it's uh, defined as the sustainable economic contributions of our oceans, coasts, and Great Lakes. And when you think about what that is, it encompasses a range of things from tourism and recreation along the coast to commercial and recreational to things like ocean exploration and mapping. And a lot of the blue technology that has spun off from that activity and offshore development, whether it be oil, gas, natural gas, or wind. Uh, there's also um, the, I, th I think, a very important area um, of uh, coastal resilience. So all natural infrastructure and, and spatial planning to ensure we're prepared for things like sea level rise, intense storms, and anything that the environment can throw at you on the coast. So that was another big area. And then there's other areas, for example, shipping and shipbuilding. Uh, you can just think about anything on the coast that brings in, uh, helps grow our national economy. That's the blue economy. But there's an important kind of definition in, in recent discussions on the blue economy, and that is sustainability. Whereas you can be, you can focus on the extractive type of industries, minerals, oil and gas, as I mentioned, fishing. But if we don't think about sustainability and ensuring that those resources are not overused and burned and depleted to the point where they are no more, well, then that's not a useful approach. So sustainability and conservation are a key part of the blue economy. How does weather and climate impact food security in our oceans? What currently are the greatest threats to food security in our oceans? Right. Well, weather and climate have a giant impact on food security. And I'm primarily talking about commercial fishing and aquaculture. So when you think about it, commercial fishermen, holy cow, if you've ever watched Deadliest Catch, you know what I'm talking about. The weather can really uh, interrupt commercial fishing. 
It's very. It's one of the most uh, hazardous uh, um, jobs in the country. And so there you go. That's how weather can affect it. Um, but climate also is affecting commercial fishing and, and aquaculture in a big way because you're seeing things like fish stocks moving from where they normally are, primarily north. That's a big problem for our, our largest fishery, which is in Alaska. You're seeing the pollock stocks move north out of the range of most of our fishermen. So that's a, that's a problem from American food security standpoint. And then you're seeing the same around the world, certainly in developed countries. And that the biggest threat there is not just climate, but it's combined with illegal fishing. And the term is illegal, unreported, and unregulated fishing, or IUU fishing. And that, that, that is the biggest threat to food security right now across the globe. Developing countries are seeing primarily China basically take everything from the ocean, and that's hurting their economies in a big way. So I've been involved in not only promoting fisheries management and the capacity for small countries to uh, develop fisheries management, but also to work with the Coast Guard to combat illegal fishing primarily by China. How do you think private companies and government can work together in the next 10 years to improve food security in our oceans? Well, they are already, which is great, and they can do more. So, for example, with respect to the, the aspect of severe weather affecting fishermen and fisheries, there's great work in the private sector to improve prediction and, and assessing the impacts of storms. For example, one of the companies I work for is Tomorrow.io, and they have their own model, which is very good and improved, of an improvement upon uh, the weather services model. They're actually working with the weather service to improve their prediction center, the Earth Prediction Innovation Center, or EPIC. And they provide an API that allows anybody, whatever they're doing, a fisherman, a public citizen, uh, trying to know when their property might be impacted by flooding or anything, to know exactly what the weather impact will be, where they are, and when, and then get advice and recommendation or insights as to what to do about it for flooding, moving to high ground, for fishermen uh, going south to avoid the storm, etc. It's a really, really powerful um, tool. I, like, I think there's this great opportunity for more companies that are providing data and insights and applications and tools that to do that help uh, address and, and make food security more secure and more efficient, certainly for America and also for our partners around the globe. Can you tell us more about the blue economy and where you think it is trending? Well, right. Thank you, Emily. And I think a big takeaway for uh, folks that are listening to this from their food security uh, standpoint is that um, one of the largest growth areas uh, for good in food security is marine aquaculture, so fish farming. Now, for a while, uh, environmental groups were pretty opposed to it because some of the some companies didn't have the best practices, and so you'd see either uh, fish from fish pens contaminate local natural stocks, or uh, or there be sources of pollution with all the waste generated from the pens. But modern aquaculture practices have evolved, and they're very sustainable. They're very good on the environment. And that's where there's a giant growth opportunity, particularly for the United States. Think, think about this. 
we have a seafood trade deficit, meaning we import more than we export by about $17 billion. But we have the second largest exclusive economic zone in the world. And, and not only that, we have the know-how. We have some of the best aquaculture scientists and fishery scientists on the planet. So there's a giant opportunity for all that space and all that need to reduce the imports and increase our exports and increase that which goes to feed our population. And, um, and, and so the problem, you're probably wondering why is that so, is because the red tape I talked about earlier. Getting a permit to put in a fish pen is a nightmare, or had been, because you'd have to go to the Army Corps of Engineers, and then you have to go to NOAA, and possibly the Fish and Wildlife Service, and so on, maybe even the Navy. <laughs> and so people were just frustrated and threw their hands up, and we had only seen to date aquaculture happening in state waters. But one of the big priorities when I was uh, at NOAA last year was to put in place executive order the president signed on promoting seafood competitiveness and economic growth. And what that did is there were a number of provisions that directed us to make permitting for aquaculture easier and reducing the regulations on aquaculture, ensuring they were science-based, and also reducing barriers for commercial fishermen and um, combating illegal fishing, as I talked about, and uh, looking at seafood trade and finding more favorable trade um, policies. Uh, here's one for you, and I, our listeners can look out. It might get published today. Uh, we're recording on the 25th of April, oh, pardon me, February here. But right now, uh, Ukraine is being invaded by Russia. So I wrote an article about how banning Russian seafood imports would be very good for, for our country. Not only would it help squeeze Putin, who is, ignoring and violating all international norms and rules and hurting a, a democratic nation, and there's, there's that. But now, so we'd, do, we'd address that problem, but we'd also benefit the American blue economy by removing those imports that are coming from Russia and creating opportunity for American fishermen. And uh, I could go on, but so there you go. That's just a little bit about uh, the food security and fishing is aquaculture. You have had such a successful career. What advice do you have for early career professionals? Is there anything you would have done differently in your own career? Oh, good question, Emily. Well, thank you. I'm very lucky and blessed to have had amazing teams, and I mean it sincerely. Anybody who's at a high station anywhere gets somewhere because they are carried by others. And I was carried by many. Uh, so my advice to people is to be aware of that and uh, know and work as a team. And a lot of young early career professionals are ambitious, so they're always thinking about climbing that next step in the ladder. But uh, think about working as a team, helping out your teammates, and helping those under you. And when you really do that, uh, instead of just focusing on your own accomplishments or pleasing your boss, I think you'll find you'll go a lot farther. And, uh, and I know I, it, that probably took longer for me to learn than it should have, uh, but when I realized it, it, uh, 
it was really the secret to success. Uh, other advice I have is to always build your network. Uh, there's a great community in AMS and beyond, and so be active and engaged in that network because uh, opportunities happen the more you interact and interconnect with others. Uh, I think that's, that's one. And then the other piece of advice, Emily, is also for early career professionals, often uh, they don't think about leading, and, but then they come and get a position where they're a supervisor, and all of a sudden they haven't thought much about their own abilities and approach as a leader. It's never too early to start thinking about who you are as a leader and how you would lead, because everybody really has an opportunity to lead. A leadership philosophy, and a part of that is acknowledging that many people lead up. Junior people influence senior people, uh, and early careers influence senior PhDs all the time. And being aware of that, I think, allows you to make a bigger impact when you're when you're in early career. It allows senior people to think um, benefit as much because. They now learn about the entire team, if you will. And then there's leading across, influencing your peers. Uh, being aware of that also is important. So I, I think people should always think about their approach as a leader and all, ways they can always improve. What is the most influential book that you have read? Who has influenced you the most in your career? Two big questions. Uh, a lot of books I like to read, so it's hard to name one. Uh, some recent books I liked a lot are by a mentor of mine, Admiral Bill McRaven, a Navy SEAL four-star who retired and became the Chancellor of the University of Texas. And his book is called Make Your Bed. It's a great book because it's really just about focusing on simple things um, that if you do those right, then you can build upon that and do great things. And I, I think it, his perspective as a Navy SEAL who commanded the raid that killed Osama bin Laden is unique and powerful, and so one of my favorite books. Uh, who influenced me as a person? Well, Admiral McRaven is one. Uh, there are many. Um, I will tell you, though, one of my most influential leaders and role models is my wife, uh, Karen. I met when I was getting a PhD at Scripps Institution of Oceanography. Karen had been in the Navy like me, but I did not know her then, and it was only after she got out, that uh, we got to know each other, and here we are, 22 years in with three beautiful daughters. But she's my role model because uh, when she was in the Navy, it was a different time. I think it was more like the old boys network, and uh, there was very few women doing hard jobs like hers. She was a Navy salvage diver. So she was harassed and discriminated against on a daily basis. And it sadly forced her to get out. But, and I you know she would have been a better Navy officer, a better admiral than me. And, um, and but her, her tenacity and her getting over it, it, it actually, amusingly, she resisted meeting me for a time because of that experience, knowing I was from the Navy. But uh, she got over that, and here we are. I, I don't, I, I see people when I, leading in the Navy and at NOAA, and I never wanted them to have that experience. So I was a big proponent of women empowerment and equity. I still am. I have three daughters, as I told you. And I really look up to Karen for having gone through that, having not let it um, 
her and having been a, become a better person despite it. And, uh, and that's, that's, that's my role model. This flows right into our next question. As your wife took quite an exciting picture of you in a surface cage in the ocean next to a great white shark that you shared with me from one of your reports. It has a caption, quote, White Shark Lizzie in the background, unquote. Can you tell us the story behind this photo and what you learned about great white sharks? Good question. Actually, a great blue economy question because we were uh, doing two things. We were a research expedition to study the great white shark population of the Eastern Pacific. And so we spent three days cage diving off Guadalupe Island, Baja, California, taking photographs of these sharks, and they were all uploaded into a database to, uh, that, that had been run, has been running for 22 years to monitor this population and draw, after analysis, conclusions as to whether the population was stable, growing, or declining, which is really important for this apex predator because apex predators are a great kind of a marker for the entire ecosystem. So that's the sciencey part of it, which I thought was important to contribute to. But then there was just the, the sheer adventure of it. And yeah, so we were, the, the, believe me, these animals are incredible. And, um, and it, was just a, it was just a thrill to do that for three days with my wife, Karen. And I, always, I kind of blamed her because it was her crazy idea, but it was great. And it really represented also another really important part of the American blue economy. And that's, that's a ocean, ocean recreation and tourism. And so all those kind of activities support like dive operators, and, sh and ships that do this, that conduct tours. And they're good because they're bringing people to the ocean, helping them learn about it and why it needs to be conserved, the resources in it need to be conserved. And they go out and tell their two friends and so on. So I, I really believe in the ocean tourism industry um, today because they are largely a sustainable model that works to educate our public on what, what the ocean contributes to the blue economy and to our planet, and also why it should be conserved. What is it like to be nose to nose with a great white shark? Right. Well, hey, I don't know if you have any. Wherever you post this, I have video. So you can tell the <laughs> listeners to contact me, and they, that video pretty much says it all. Yeah, I was very glad for the bars in the cage. Communication is important for any science, and especially in the atmospheric and oceanic sciences, where we are often speaking directly with decision makers and the public. Can you describe how you have developed your speaking skills and how you have polished them? I do, and you're right. It is important, especially when you're the higher up you are, because you're representing your organization. So you're the champion. You're the cheerleader. How you talk about it matters because you can either impress people and have them want to support or partner with that organization, or if you basically bore people, not so much. And so, yeah, it is really important. And, uh, and also secure things like public support or the support from Congress. Uh, I never really took a class. I just learned on the job. You do that in the Navy. You Young people are given great responsibility early on. And uh, I think as a Navy Admiral, that's cer certainly polished it quite a bit. You want to, uh, I always try to be specific. You know, there's a lot of people like to talk broad policy, broad strategy. That's good. You should. But I always like to give examples and name people and names. And 
numbers about things so people, my listeners, would know what I was talking about. And uh, any chance I could to acknowledge the good work of the people of the organization I'd take because that's just, that's just owed to an agency like NOAA who, and the Weather Service who just work so hard as public servants to do so much good. And I just thought they, they deserve to be celebrated. I want to thank everyone in the food security community for paying attention to such an important issue and, and, and bringing it to light. Uh, again, I mostly have the ocean-based food security experience and view, um, but I know it to be important. Our planet's population is growing. The only way we can do that sustainably without ruining the planet more is to be deliberate and thoughtful and apply science food security policy decisions. So the fact that AMS does this is fantastic, and I, uh, anytime I have, I can support it. Let me know, and I'll be there. Thank you again for joining us on today's podcast.